Hey y'all, welcome to Technicolor Jesus, where we talk movies and pop culture with an eye for pastors, preachers, and Sunday school teachers. On today's show, we are coming home for Christmas Eve, but it's going to be a little dark, a little deathly, maybe a little magical. This week, we are talking about Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows, part one. My name is Matt, and I'm the pastor here at Amherst Presbyterian Church in the beautiful Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia. And I'm Adam, and I teach preaching and worship at Andover Newton Theological School in Boston. And if you're new to the show, here's how it works. We invite guests to the show who pick movies for us to watch. We watch them from our vantage as ministers, as theologians, and as people who just like movies. Then we gather for a conversation with our guest. So in our first segment, Justification by Faith, we're going to ask our guest, Dr. Amy Merrill Willis, what Harry Potter, and specifically this seventh installation in the film franchise, has to do with ministry, theology, and the world. In our second segment, Preaching to the Choir, we're going to offer up some specific ideas for what you might do with Deathly Hallows for the lectionary text for Christmas Eve. Matt, it's almost Christmas. I know, I'm feeling old. I got you. Yeah, I do. Yeah, what did you get me, Adam? I can't tell you. It's It's a surprise. It's a surprise. It's going to show up on your doorstep on Christmas morning, but open it quickly because it's going to be a giant snake. (laughs) I don't think uh, UPS delivers th- on Christmas morning, so you might have to find some other kind of magical package service. Uh, in our third segment, Postludes, we're going to take a second to share a little preacher thought from each of us on something else we're reading, watching, or following. But before we get too far down the line, let's introduce our special guest. Amy Merrill Willis is Associate Professor of Religious Studies at Lynchburg College. She holds a PhD in Hebrew Bible from Emory and has serious expertise in biblical literature and theology. She is the author of Dissonance and the Drama of Divine Sovereignty in the Book of Daniel, as well as numerous commentary chapters and essays. She's also a Presbyterian pastor and a pretty serious Harry Potter geek, and I am thrilled to have her on the show with us. Thanks for being here, Amy. Thanks for having me. This has got to be the crowning achievement of my career so far. Yeah, I would imagine That's it good. would be, yes. Yeah. So, so good. I'm really happy to hear that. We are going to talk Harry Potter. Uh, Harry Potter and Deathly Hallows Part 1, to be precise. This is the seventh of the eight films in the Harry Potter Prime canon. I guess nine, if you now include this fall's Fantastic Beasts and where to find them. It's the one where they've made this somewhat controversial decision to split the final book into two movies. So here in the first part and... Folks, I am not going to recap the entire Harry Potter universe. At this point, if you're out, you're out. But here we have found the world turned upside down by the growing power of the Dark Lord Voldemort. We find our heroes Harry, Ron, and Hermione off on this quest to find the objects that hold Voldemort's power, these horcruxes, and destroy them. Along the way, there's a lot of talk about darkness, a lot of talk about sacrifice, a lot of teenage psychosexual angst, and a lot of camping. There's even a little talk about Christmas. This one released just before Thanksgiving 2010. It is of the Christmas season, but the question is, is this movie of Christmas in any substantial way? So, Amy, two questions to kick us off. Broadly, help us think about Harry Potter's relationship to the church as a whole, and specifically, how does Deathly Hallows Part 1 help us think about this Christmas season? Well, uh, so those are great questions. So first, I want to just back up a minute and uh, mention the controversy uh, that has long brewed among Christians about the value of Harry Potter, because I think it's illustrative. So just a couple of little uh, stories here. You know, uh, back when I lived in Spokane, Washington, there was a little sign in the window of my kids' elementary school warning parents about the dangers of letting our children read the Harry Potter books or watch the Harry Potter movies. And um, my nephew uh, recounted a story where his uh, roommate in college said that those books were god-awful because none of the characters went to church at any point in the seven books. So, um, but nevertheless, um, we've got a book by Connie Neal called The Gospel According to Harry Potter, and uh, uh, there are all these great theological themes and moments in the series. So I think that controversy in and of itself asks us to, to 
uh, pay attention to those uh, persistent uh, questions about Christ and culture, how the sacred and the secular are connected. And I think in these books, and especially in Deathly Hallows, there's not a clear distinction. I think there's that, that line is uh, fuzzy, and I think it's often fuzzy in Western literature and Western culture. But aside from that, I love this book um, and the, this movie because of how the Harry Potter narratives shape the moral imagination. Uh, so Christians have been storytellers since our beginning. Christmas season is the time when we really do tell a lot of stories. And so that's a basic connection there. But coming to the movie itself, so I think this um, particular story, this particular movie is connected to Christmas because of those sets of scenes, the several scenes that take place between Christmas Eve and the first few days after Christmas. So Christmas is the backdrop. And yeah, these scenes are dark and, you know, they're set in the evening and Harry and Hermione are wandering into Godric's Hollow, this tiny little um, place in the middle of nowhere. Does it remind us a little bit of Bethlehem? Maybe. Um, You know, I could make a case for that. I could even come up with a Christmas carol, you know, with mention of Godric's Hollow. Um, But um, I like the fact that it's not sentimental. There, yes, as you said, the world is upside down. Um, But there are these moments of light, these sort of maybe incarnational moments where we see that all hope is not lost, that maybe it's a graced world. And they end up in a church cemetery. They're they're in sacred ground um, and at sacred time. And the fact that it's Christmas Eve is a moment of light um, that sort of beckons to them. Yeah, that these kind of two almost musical moments of grace. One is hearing the church choir, right? Which is the closest thing I think anywhere in these films we get to actually going to a church is is the walking past it and hearing the Christmas music coming out in the background. I was struggling to figure out what they were singing and couldn't place it. And then uh, shortly before or after, it's it's that uh, the sequence of Harry of Harry and Hermione dancing in the tent, which is the other kind of musical cue that comes right around that season, which becomes these kind of life-giving moments of, of soundtrack almost. Yeah. And it's interesting in that, in that scene too, is Ron is absent and you get the sense that the wizarding world is, uh, doesn't make a lot of sense of a religious framework of the world yet. Harry and Hermione have a lot of experience in the muggle world. And so they were, they are able in that moment to begin to, I think, be the ones who, who help us as the audience who are not wizards begin to uh, look through their eyes and see how Christmas, which apparently is celebrated by wizards though. How, I mean, in what way and how is, is opaque. Um, But at least we can see through Hermione and Harry's eyes and they would, bring some indication that Christmas operates in a way that we would understand. Because it, I mean, it seems to me that uh, even though, yeah, this film kind of revolves around these scenes that take place at Christmas, there's, there's a lot of Advent in this movie too. And, and part of that is just structural because it's got that part one of two syndrome where it, it's almost too much filler. I mean, it's, it, the pacing is very slow compared to some of the other films in this franchise. Uh, it's two and a half hours that is half of a book. And to do that, it has to take its time in some places. Uh, I actually don't mind it that much. I, I have a soft spot for these kind of intermediate films. It's the part of me that likes the, the part one of two and the end of the Hunger Games franchise too, which is like a controversial statement. But, you know, the, the, the joke is, like, how do you know that you're watching Deathly Hallows Part 1 is because it's the one with all the camping in it. Like, there's a lot of just camping. There's a lot of waiting. There's a lot of pent-up energy and rage and this sense that they should go and fight for something, but not a lot of actual action because nobody entirely knows what to do, which is a refrain for about half an hour in the middle of the film that nobody knows what they're doing and they're not sure how to do it. Uh, it, it seems like this film is a lot about waiting. So I want to speak up for the camping and the uh, endless yeah, journeying. 
So uh, from a biblical perspective, journeys are so important in um, the Bible and in religious literature because journeys are about character transformation, and often they're about epiphanies. And, uh, and, you know, uh, in the Old Testament, you know, which is my part of the Bible, uh, there are an awful lot of people who go on journeys that, you know, where they're meandering, it's not ever, you know, linear. And I would agree that this is very much an Advent kind of journeying and waiting, and it's hard and difficult. And as Harry, Ron, and Hermione are journeying, um, they are caught up in all of these, you know, internal questionings, difficulties, trials. It's testing their relationship, their disillusion with each other. And then, you know, Ron sort of betrays them and leaves them um, in the midst of all this. But at the same time, they do have these epiphanic moments along the way that ultimately bring them to Godric's Hollow. And that uh, journeying through these wilderness landscapes is an external reflection of all this internal turmoil. And it's beautiful and dreary at the same time. I think that's great. Uh, you know, I think that this over-sentimentalized Christmas shtick is overrated that, you know, sometimes we need some good darkness and that's what Advent does for us. Yeah. The location scout needs to get a bonus in this movie. Yeah. It's, it's just phenomenally. I, I want the annotated version where it just tells me exactly where all of those shots are, especially that kind of like high Rocky outcrop that Harry and, and Hermione are camping on for a while when they decide to go to Godric's Hollow that is so broken and cracked and it's just spectacular looking. I, I think it's important too that they slow down because there is this uh there's this convention that they can go anywhere by just apparating, I think is what they call it. Uh and Ron's injury makes them actually walk it out. Um which further slows them down. It doesn't it 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 makes sure that they stay in the wilderness, so to speak, because they can't just go wherever they like, which uh, is helpful as a story convention because now we can see some of the effects of the journey, like the the uh, you know the the monastic tradition talks about asadia, right? The uh, the sense that you're going to keep doing this thing over and over and over again, and you're not going to be able to make any meaning from it. Uh, and the monastic tradition is worried that, you know, praying the hours every day, at some point you need to remember and figure out how to make spiritual meaning of this thing that is so familiar to you. And I think similarly on pilgrimages and when you're just out wandering, uh, there is the deep fear that presses in on Ron and and Harry and Hermione that they're going to do this forever, that there isn't any end to this. And that needs to be present, I think, for us to actually believe um, that whatever they actually end up winning is earned. And I guess so that my question would be. Where, where is the, what is the actual conflict in the film? Is it between the three of them and that sense of existential dread? Or is there this kind of broader... How, how do we place it in the kind of broader cosmic conflict that seems to be going on in the Harry Potter universe, which is centrally uh, uh, present in this relationship with this dark lord, with the kind of omnipresence of death in this film... I mean, in some ways, this is an Advent Christmas movie. In some ways, it's kind of an Ash Wednesday movie, right? Where the the scar on his forehead becomes this kind of marker of death that he has to live into, and he has to begin or continue on this journey of kind of acknowledging and facing mortality uh, that seems to um, kind of. Stalk this film at, at every turn and stalk the franchise more broadly going into yeah. the in, from the, the the installments that proceed and follow it as well. Yeah, so um, 
the uh, you're absolutely right that it, so so much about this you know um, points ahead towards uh, Lent and Easter um, themes, uh, and the uh, but but we do have this um, sort of a sense of. Um, so the, the going back to your original um, question about the, uh, you know, is it just existential angst or is there, you know, how does it connect to the cosmic um, conflict? And uh, I think that uh, that horcrux, you know, that hangs around their necks is uh, an opportunity for them to struggle with sort of the, the evil and darkness within them and how it preys on them. And they are almost at this moment of hopelessness when they end up in Godric's Hollow. Uh, and it's brought out more in the book than it is in the movie. But, you know, Harry is already at that moment wishing he were dead. And um, uh, and then somehow in the midst of this, there's this inbreaking of hope. Um, and I think it is incarnational um, in lots of ways. So it's not quite yet to Ash Wednesday, to Lent, to Easter, but it points ahead. Um, and yet, uh, even though that's the case, I hate it when I go to church on Christmas Day and the preacher starts talking about crucifixion um, in the middle of the baby Jesus story. So I'm a little conflicted on that issue. Um, I have to say, I, well, I, I, I too am conflicted. And when it's done well, though, you can see the ways in which these things are connected. Right. And I think you can see it in this movie. So Matt, you're right that there are some Lenten, um, and Ash Wednesday themes that are present. Uh, I think that there is also uh, the character of death who shows up in this movie in ways that death has not in others, specifically in this amazing animated portion right. of the movie. It, it's, I think it's the best part of the movie. I think the animation and the imagination that went into that uh, is so evocative and interesting. And, um, and I went back and, and just watched it again just to, to see the ways in which this, this folk story had been imagined. And we get a sense that death has made an entrance into this story in a way uh, that we didn't notice up until this point. Especially as we see Voldemort seemingly try and thwart death in some way. And um, so we get a new enemy. And to the extent that part two is going to deal, I think, more intentionally with this idea of death, right now we're getting this, the presence of someone showing up uh, who is making the very powerful afraid. Uh, and I think that that's a Christmas story. If we think about the presence of Christ as the thing that strikes fear into Herod, uh, and that Herod ultimately sees the loss of power, the eventual death, his eventual death as a, a consequence of the birth of this child, then we're getting something that is more interesting as a, as a sort of Christmas story where we look at um, where evil is trying to sustain its, its power and its life and where something like a boy, a small child, is actually threatening uh, that power. And really the thing that's also being threatened in the midst of all of that is death too. I love every bit of that. I, I don't want to get to the too far into the lectionary text before we at least talk a little bit about sacrifice here. Uh, I think that you know, uh, we've made a case for this movie as the Advent and Christmas movie as a potentially an Ash Wednesday and an Easter movie. It's it's also got a little bit of, a, of, of an atonement theology happening inside it. Uh, we have this moment at the beginning when Harry wants to uh, leave everyone behind because he doesn't want them to sacrifice themselves for him. And, and Ron kind of pulls him in and says, you may be the chosen one, but this is a lot bigger than you. It's a really interesting kind of atonement theology happening there. And I think it gets echoed in Dobby's death later on in the film. 
Oh, where Dobby is the one, is, is the slave who has been freed. I mean, there's a lot of Galatians sermons to be written on Dobby's moment here. Um, and now as a freed slave, he's free to make sacrificial decisions. He rescues, you know, he can rescue his friend because he is a, is a free elf and can give his life uh, for this kind of broader vision of where good and evil reside in this universe. So am I crazy, or are there some atonement theologies here to go alongside all of the incarnational ones? Yeah, so I would say definitely yes, but um, to respond to that, I'd have to jump ahead to Deathly Hallows Part 2 um, to just lend further support to what you were saying, and I'm not sure that we want to do that um, yet, but I think it it has a uh, the... Uh, atonement theologies have a lot to do with not only Harry's walk into the forest in Deathly Hallows Part 2, but sure. also his mom's sacrifice um, at um, way back at the beginning sure. um, that we discover uh, more about in this book. So maybe that would be jumping ahead. Um, but coming back to the problem of sacrifice and atonement for a lot of us Christians um, is that question um, uh, to have an atonement theology, do we have to have um, do we have to have violence? Do we have to have death? And um, and if we have violence and death, uh, does that mean that our atonement stories are always, caught up, necessarily caught up in violence and death. So um, Harry Potter never really gets away from that, even though we see sacrifice happening in ways that are um, self-sacrificing. So others aren't coerced to sacrifice, as you to sacrifice themselves. As you say, Dobby does it in freedom and uh, wants to lay down his life, and others as well. Um, Harry will too. Um, so part of me wants to say, yes, there are times when we, uh, we want to lift that up as something that's important and good, as long as we're sacrificing ourselves and not um, requiring that others be sacrificed for us. Amy, I think you're right. I, I think that there is something also really interesting about the ways in which, uh, Hermione and Harry and Ron learn to share burdens and share sacrifice, uh, that they spread it amongst themselves. Uh, and specifically with, uh, with the locket that they don't yet know how to destroy, but know it is having ill effects on whoever holds it. Aren't they just supposed and to so, take it to Mordor and drop it in the fires of Mount Doom? <laughs> I know that's exactly right. I was thinking that same thing. Like, I feel guys. like I've seen this part before, right? <laughs> yeah. Pretty simple. Uh, um, but that locket is such an, an interesting symbol in this uh, in this movie. And it, I couldn't help but think about this in terms of, of some of the ministry and organizations that I've been a part of, where you arrive and you see some measure of dysfunction or some problem, and you know it's there, and you know that it's poisonous, and you know that it's hurting people, but you don't know how to solve it. You can't destroy that. You can't pull the poison out of it and you get into church work and you just, uh, you want to be able to help and destroy it, but you don't know how. And everything that you do, every spell that you cast on it and every word that you try and give to it seems to fail. And so over time, you know that it needs help. And so you keep it really close to you and you think about it and it's always at like the front of your mind and you, and you, you figuratively wear it. And over time, your attention to it actually doesn't solve it. It actually begins to poison you some. And I, I couldn't help but watch that and think, man, I feel like I've worn that necklace before in, in times where I'm trying my best with full uh, sincerity and with some noble intention and virtue. And I can't do it. And my attempt to try is failing and I'm dying in the middle of it. Uh, and how there have been times where people say, well, 
let me carry it for a little while. You know, you do your work and I'll, I'll, I'll work on this for a little bit and see what happens and how that can be such a liberating moment. And um, while maybe not atonement is the sort of sharing of sacrifice that I think is central to the heart of the Christian message. Yeah, so what I hear you saying, Adam, is that um, uh, community um, is is really important to the Christian life. And, um, and these stories, this movie embodies community um, in some important ways so that um, it's not just Harry who's the the messianic child, the chosen one, um, who's, who's doing all this important stuff and wrestling with evil, but, uh, there's a threesome, um, who's wrestling with it together. And that threesome is also empowered by all these other people who are sometimes off camera and not in the scene. Um, but they won't, finally be able to accomplish, uh, to get that locket into Mount Doom without actually the coordinated work of their community. Um, so sacrifices are shared very, very broadly, and yet they can never get away from uh, the, the, the horrible um, evil and darkness uh, that that locket represents. And that always remains within them in some way, because in a lot of ways, the locket just makes them just exacerbates their own dark um, suspicions, what's already inside of them. And that sense of community sharing and community burden sharing is go- is only going to exponentially increase once you move into the second half of this book and the second and the second part of this film uh, duo. As, as the as the plot moves back to Hogwarts. Uh, let's move specifically into preaching and into the lectionary. This segment is called Preaching to the Choir, so we're going to look at the lectionary passages for Christmas Eve, year A. We have two major cornerstone texts, which are the prophetic words of Isaiah 9 and the nativity account in the second chapter of Luke. We also have a psalm of praise in Psalm 96, and that thing that probably nobody will preach Christmas Eve, which is the account of God's grace in Titus 2. Uh, Amy, yeah, I dare you. I dare you to preach it. I dare you. I double dog dare you. So let's do you 30 minutes it, on Titus know. and then 10 minutes each on the other ones. <laughs> no, let, uh, Amy, take, uh, give us a first crack at the lectionary passages. As you think on Deathly Hallows, what helps spark your interpretation? Oh, well, uh, so, uh, you know, I can't get away from the messianic child thing. Um, so Isaiah 9, unto us a child is born. If unto any... us a child is born. Oh, beautiful. Yes, think, sing it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so we're so, yeah, we're so used to hearing, you know, that passage through Handel, you know, um, Handel singing in our ears. Um, but you know, and Harry, Harry Potter is the messianic child. He's the Christ figure, um, uh, that Isaiah nine, um, you know, uh, sings about, talks about, uh, so what does it mean to be the chosen one? And, uh, I think that's, that's fascinating. I think that the way in which we think about the, the mess, the chosen one, the messianic, uh, child has so many ramifications um, for uh, Christian thinking about politics, the clash of powers, who saves, who doesn't save, our desire for a an idyllic uh, future. Um, and a lot of those questions are questions that we find Harry and his friends wrestling with. And uh, they push back at the messianic child a bit. So they, they keep Harry in his place. Um, so uh, uh, in some interesting ways. So I like, I like that connection. Yeah, well, I, I think the, the messianic child is a really interesting way to, to begin to push Harry into it. I, I also like the idea that Yes, Harry is ultimately going to have to do this alone. Um, but Harry is rarely the 
one in these books who is the hero there i mean there are so many different people who act as savior who act as um the one who's willing to sacrifice on behalf of their uh their family their loved one their neighbor uh and in in many ways the story spreads that out i mean it's almost as if the community has to sort of become one in order to become this messianic figure um, yes, Harry bears it. He bears it in his body, literally with this mark on his head. But uh, but other people are bearing things as well. And I, and I think you see that at, uh, with Dobby. You see that at the beginning when George is, uh, is wounded, though in the book, I believe he dies. Um, or one of, someone dies in that first initial and they softened it, if I'm remembering correctly. You correct me if I'm wrong, Amy. Uh, um, well, Hedwig dies and uh, Mad-Eye Moody both die, yeah, and that's true that's right. in the movie and the book. And, um, yeah, George just loses an ear. Oh, he just loses an ear, which he doesn't. Just. Do. Yeah, he's, he's got two. He's got two. He's got another one. Uh, and, you know, they're wizards. They can figure it out. Uh, so, But there are all of these moments. I, I feel like J.K. Rowling, uh, perhaps more than some other uh children's literature, young adult literature writers are, are willing to sacrifice people. Um, and to that extent, it's, it's also interesting to me. We see uh, only one instance of my favorite character, Neville Longbottom, hmm. uh, in this. And yet there is this sense that he too is a child that lost his parents. And he too has, um, has been trying to find his way in the world. And, uh, and in, when Harry, when we, when we try and sort of set him apart as unique, Harry shares different things with people, other people in this story. There is nothing unique, not no one part that Harry possesses that is unique that you can't find somewhere else among the characters in the books. I mean, it's that same line from Ron from the beginning. Like, we're not sacrificing ourselves for you. We're sacrificing ourselves because you are a key to this broader vision that we're trying to live into. Okay, so let's circle back to the second chapter of Luke. Uh, Amy, as now we're into the, the nativity story itself, uh, the very familiar words, and there's a, there's a lot that we could unpack here. Uh, can you help us get into the text a little bit? Yeah, so with Luke 2, uh, um, there we see uh, uh, Luke's gospel setting up uh, what will ultimately be a clash of powers that I think is um, not only central to the the gospel and the story of Jesus's life, uh, ministry, death, resurrection, um, but also uh, quite important to uh, the Harry Potter story. So with uh, so you know with Luke, it's uh, you know we we get this. Um, um, discussion of, you know, who the, the emperor is and who the governor is and who these world powers are. And the idea was that, you know, everybody thought uh, Caesar Augustus was the savior of the world. Um, and there this was the time of the uh, Pax Romana, the Pax Augustana. But it turns out the Pax Augustana is not so peaceful if you're among the vulnerable and the lowly. And so a political and cosmic struggle is is being set up at the beginning of that of that gospel at that Jesus's uh, birth uh, comes in to engage those those worldly powers. Uh, and so Harry Potter does a great job of helping us see that those clash of powers, the cosmic um, and the political, uh, as something that inhabits our universe all the time. Uh, certainly, uh, Harry Potter's got this sen sense of being, you know, eschatological or apocalyptic. It's got this whole millennial framework, right? You know, Harry Potter's doing his thing. It's been about a thousand years since the founding of Hogwarts. So you got that whole millennial feel going on. But, you know, we don't need to live at the end of time to see the clash of powers happening all around us. And what kind of stand do we take in the midst of that? Do we stand with the vulnerable, with the vulnerable um, baby? Um, do we stand with the outgroups? You know, um, Harry uh, shows us how to stand with the outgroups and the stigmatized. And so I love that uh, a couple of years ago, Scientific American published an article about the uh, kids who read 
these books um, and watch these movies tend to have a much more positive view of stigmatized groups and uh, because Harry spends so much time with stigmatized groups like mudbloods. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, it's a social force when uh, when the moral formation of of people is at stake, um, and and in that way, I think it it does uh, meet some of of scripture's force when uh, when people do make meaning of their life and how they're going to act in the world um, based upon the models that they see in literature. Uh, I think as I read Luke two again, and I think about the cosmic and the, uh, and the political powers that are about to clash. I'm also reminded that they're, they're about to clash in a, uh, little corner of, of the world. It's a sort of backwards little town in Bethlehem where this, uh, this story is going to begin. And, um, and Harry Potter, Deathly Hallows one, Godric's Hollow, and we've been talking about this place a lot, in part because I think it might be the center of gravity of the movie. Um, there's a lot that happens prior to this, and there's a lot that happens after it, but in some ways, it is the turning point of, uh, of the, the tone of the movie and, and what's going to happen. And what's interesting to, to me is that there is this moment of coming home and coming back to this birthplace, and it seems that Harry has never visited this place before uh and what does it mean to return to the seat of your family to return to that place where you're from and where everyone tells you this is important but you've never been there and um and you don't even know if you can call it home and i think about joseph uh, returning to the seat of his own family bethlehem the city of david as as luke calls it um, and trying to figure out as someone who's been living in the Galilean region, <laughs> like, what am I doing here? What is this place? How do I make sense of it? Meanwhile, Mary is also along for the ride. And, um, and I think empathizing with that journey back to a place that's your home, but you've never lived, uh, could be a fertile uh, imaginative uh, opportunity for preaching. Um, specifically, as we look at Harry Potter, the, so much of the movie is transient. They're just moving and moving and moving and moving. And then suddenly they come to a place where people don't move any longer, namely a cemetery, right? Like, like they went from this place where they're like, all of these rocks. I mean, I think that this is intentional. Like this outcrop of rocks that look like headstones. And then they show up in this cemetery and there are all of these headstones. Um, and so when you're asking questions about home and where our homes are, how do we understand our homes? How does our history play into that? It's hard to not also begin to talk about uh, relationship, about family, which also becomes a major theme in this movie, uh, where Ron says to, uh, to Harry at some point, like, you don't have a family. Uh, so you don't know what I'm going through as I'm trying to, to listen to see if anyone's died. Um, as young people, they don't really know the boundaries of their relationships either. And so they have, uh, so Hermione and Harry have this plutonic, maybe dance that is a very, um, it's kind of, provocative because they don't quite know what their relationship is and they don't have the structure of Hogwarts. They don't have the community of their school or their families. They only have each other and together they're trying to figure out what home is. And to ask that question with the backdrop of so much turmoil, I think is indicative of that first century story of asking Joseph and Mary, where is home? Uh, against the backdrop of the Pax Augustana. There's this interesting moment uh, in the film when Harry and Hermione are walking into Godric's Hollow and they talk about why they have chosen not to use Polyjuice Potion to 
go into the town where they could disguise themselves to look like muggles or someone else so that they wouldn't be spotted. And, uh, and, and Harry points out that, you know, this is where I was born. I'm not returning as someone else. Uh, there's actually a change from the book where they do use Polyjuice Potion to, to sneak in so that no one will recognize them. And, and I, I suspect that this is like a movie production decision that they just didn't feel like using other <laughs> actors again and they wanted to be able to use their faces. But, but I, I think it actually improves it in some really substantial ways. And it gets at that idea of like, um, we, we get to come home as we are, even to a place that we haven't been to before. It's still a place we're of. Uh, I think about all the folks who will show up at Christmas Eve services um, because it's like their parents' church or their husband's church or the church that they grew up in or a church that they only kind of tangentially are related to, but this is when they circle back, right? This is when they come home to a place that may seem very strange. And I think that there is a, a challenge and, a, and an encouragement and a, um, an insistence here for the church that we figure out how to welcome these folks as they are and not as um, someone that they're dressing up to pretend to be. Yeah, and I want to pick up on that, too, in terms of coming back to this issue of place that Adam spoke about earlier. So, you know, Godric's Hollow is this, you know, tucked away little place, um, much as Bethlehem is, although Bethlehem is shrouded like Godric's Hollow with all kinds of history, fraught with history. But remarkably, for both places, it is away from the center of the universe. Um, so it's Godric's Hollow is not London. It's not even Hogwarts, which are the two, you know, places that are the center of action. It's um, uh, and um, uh, Bethlehem is not Jerusalem. It's not Rome. And I think this is one of um, paying attention to these places, these little places as being the center of so much important activity, even though they're not the big city, they're not the focal point of the universe um, by normal standards. Um, I, 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 like, um, I like the way both of these stories do that because we, we tend to place all of our eggs in the big city baskets. Um, and much like um, in the Roman Empire, um, you know, Rome was where things were happening. And in Judea, Jerusalem was the happening spot. But where God enters into the story, um, where the most fraught things typically happen are tucked away in and the small, maybe rural places. So it's another way in which both these stories turn our values and expectations upside down in ways that I think are great and helpful. Thank you, Amy. Uh, unfortunately, I think this is where we have to wrap up our conversation about Deathly Hollows, and I, I know we could keep going for a long time, but uh, I, I really appreciate your time being with us, Amy. Amy Merrill-Willis is the Associate Professor at Lynchburg College, and she has been so wonderful to take her time to help us think through Christmas in uh, Godric's Hollow. Thank you, Amy. Well, thank you, and I hope this podcast makes me famous. I hope it does, too. Oh, it will. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You're going to get... Your residual check will come soon. <laughs> <laughs> Very residual, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. All right, now it is time for our last segment. This one's called Postludes. It's another chance to get just a little preacher thought from each of us on something else we're watching or following. Adam, hit me up. What's your postlude? So many years ago when uh, I was living in Princeton, my mother came out to... Um, to New Jersey, and she desperately wanted to go and see the Radio City Music Hall Christmas Spectacular in New York. Did you ever see this, Matt? I uh, don't believe so. So it is this very strange variety show that must be a, a holdover from post-war New York. And it is, um, it is a mashup of the Rockettes, which are the famous kicking dance troupe, Santa Claus, singing and dancing by the Rockettes. And then at the end, this very grand nativity, 
with camels and donkeys and not just three magi, but like eight or nine. They, uh, and at first while I was watching this and my, my mom was so excited about this, I was a seminary student. And so I was like, Oh my gosh, like this strange post-war American Christianity that wants to like take dancing women who kick their legs high and, uh, and mash it together with Santa Claus and then have the gall to have this live nativity. It, it was offensive. Um, Netflix has a recording of a recent one and I watched it and I found it so delightful. (laughs) (laughs) Um, part of why I found it really delightful is that it was positively inane. Like, sure. It, it and it seems a holdover in a way that is filled with some optimism that I found infectious hmm. and um and some pageantry and some kicking and yeah none of it fits and none of it like makes creative sense but they do all of these um crowd shots of children watching this stuff too and they're super into it. And then I'm watching the Rockettes kick and they're totally uniform. And I'm thinking, wow, how do they do that? They must practice a lot. And I found myself smiling my entire, the entire way through. And then I remembered my mom smiling the entire way through while she was watching it. And it was just a reminder that... Um, that there are these strange traditions that prop up around Christmas. And they don't make a lot of sense any longer. And yet they can be the holders of some tremendous joy, as long as we don't take them too seriously. Yeah. And, uh, and at this point, with so much in the world that requires uh, some seriousness and some urgency... It was um, this small holy moment to just laugh at the terrible Santa Claus singing a song in Radio City Music Hall while kids ate it up. And I found myself um, thinking, Adam, lighten up a little bit. And that was an important lesson for me to take into this Christmas. So that's me, Matt. How about you? I may be on the other end of it. I'm not sure. I, I, I think I've decided that I'm always tired of Christmas music. And, and, I, <laughs> and I don't mind. I don't mean like Christmas hymns and sacred music. I mean, like there's not a time when I want to go to a shopping mall and hear the Christmas playlist. Uh, I think I'm just tired of a very particular set of songs. Uh, and I always am, even if it's like May. There's not a special moment when it works. And so what I'm always in need of, and I'm happy to hear suggestions, uh, is kind of more original alternative Christmas music. And there's a lot of cover albums out there. Your favorite indie band has almost certainly done a Christmas cover album. And there's lots of like, in all different kinds of genres, there's cool alt jazz stuff, like the Kenny Burrell stuff that I really like. There's some cool stuff that vibes off the Vince Guaraldi, Charlie Brown Christmas sound. There's... There's a lot of great spiritual and gospel recordings like the Odetta and the Blind Boys of Alabama stuff. Mm-hmm. And obviously there's all the like Frank Sinatra um, kind of uh, wake that you could possibly imagine. Um, but but I need more music that doesn't sound like you'd hear it in a shopping mall on Christmas Eve. Uh this is kind of a hard craft because it's hard to figure out how to signal that you've written a Christmas song without it either being a cover or having sleigh bells in it. Or having the word Christmas in the title. Um, there's a there's a indie rock group called Over the Rhine that I think accomplishes this well on a couple of albums. One called Longest Night of the Year and the other called Snow Angel. There's some great covers on there and some beautiful pieces, including this great piano instrumental called Goodbye Charles, which is just clearly riffing on the Vince Guaraldi soundtrack to Charlie Brown Christmas. Uh, but I need more, and I need it to not just be in the kind of ponderous indie rock category. 
So I, I, this is my appeal to our listeners is that I don't want you to send me your covers of Let It Snow. I want you to send me new material and just to kind of keep my interest in the, the soundtrack of this season alive and good. And now Adam's going to tell me some things I've missed and we'll be done. Mm. No, he's not. He's looking at me like, no, I don't think I, so. I, I, well, I, I think it's probably more ponderous indie rock. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you were to ask me, Adam, what do you listen to? Uh, mainly ponderous indie rock. Um, the Amy Mann album I like. Uh, did you ever listen to that? I don't think the, I know that the, one. Her yeah. Christmas album? She has a, uh, a, an interesting original one called Whatever Happened to Christmas that I, I, I like her sound and she yeah. usually um, she works with John Bryan, who I think also has a really interesting uh, sound. Do you go to a, a Christmas concert during Christmas? Uh, I, yeah, all the ones that are associated with the execution of my job. Yes, I do. Uh, <laughs> I will go to three tomorrow. So there's yeah, but it's but it's very uh you know the soundtrack is is very consistently similar so what i'm looking for is like stuff to put on while i'm making dinner that isn't the same uh right right and i mean we've gotten good good run out of you know the king's college lessons and carols sure. or something like yeah absolutely which is all i'm really valuable and beautiful uh i i'd be interested in more international songs i uh you know christmas christmas music from Places that aren't white, yeah. European, and uh, or I or hill countries. Like I listen to like a lot of Appalachian folk music too, and they have their own Christmas songs. I I'd love to hear some South American and and uh, Sub-Saharan African stuff that I think would be really cool. We have the like Puto Mayo New Orleans Christmas album, which is kind of amazing. Oh, yeah? So that's that that one I highly recommend uh, if you're in that kind of festive spirit. I am in that festive spirit. All I right. just watched the Rockettes. You better watch out. Let me be doing some high kicks in your land. All right, folks. I think that about wraps it up for this episode. And, and by extension, it wraps it up for this season of Technicolor Jesus. We're going to take a, a little time off. But in the meantime, we hope you all have a Merry Christmas. And I hope you have a Merry Christmas, Adam. Merry Christmas to you, Matt. Blessings on all the work that you have to do. I'll think of you while I am sitting at home grading papers. <laughs> Thanks for listening, everybody. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on iTunes. If you like it, leave us a rating, leave us a review, tell a friend. Uh, we really love doing this. And as we count our blessings this Christmas season, uh, we're thankful for this opportunity and thankful to all the people who tune in and listen to us. Uh, so thank you for all of your support. And thank you, Matt. Thanks, Adam. I'm sleeping in a thousand star hotel Gold leaf pillow for my head Be like a king on a king-sized riverbed I'm sleeping in a thousand star hotel